0: On the afternoon of Monday the 3rd of August 1914, the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, stood in a packed House of Commons and delivered one of the most scandalously untruthful speeches the British Parliament has ever heard, at least until recent times. He claimed that the Germans were bent on occupying Western Europe, from Denmark to France. He claimed that they had refused to negotiate. He claimed that Britain was obliged to support the French and the Belgians. Not a syllable of this was true. Then came the biggest lie of all.
1: Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
0: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't
1: look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Grey stood in the House of Commons and spoke for an hour and a quarter. He created an entirely false picture of German aggression and of the obligation that lay on the British to assist the French in fighting it. But this wasn't the greatest scandal. Grey finally and very carefully gave the House of Commons and the assembled ambassadors in the galleries the impression that he was only proposing that Britain go to war at sea. He led MPs to believe that a naval campaign would be cheap and would save Europe from German tyranny and do no harm to British trade. If we're engaged in war, said Gray, in what must stand as one of the most extraordinary statements in modern British political history, we shall suffer but little more than we shall suffer if we stand aside. Not once in his speech did Gray even mention actually sending a British army expeditionary force to France, even though he had, without any cabinet authorisation, already mobilised the British army and as good as given the French to believe that they could expect it at any moment.
0: But the outrage didn't stop there. No debate was allowed. Ramsay Macdonald, the Labour leader, stood to protest. He stated entirely correctly that Grey had barely mentioned Russia. As we've seen in these discussions, the fundamental reason Britain was going to war, the one Grey's civil servants had spent the last month frantically writing memos about, was Russian aggression on the India border and the vain hope that the Russians might be bought off if the British supported the Franco-Russian alliance in its conflict with Germany. But the Russians were deeply unpopular in Britain, so in his mendacious fairy tale about Germany, Gray hadn't even discussed the real argument for going to war. Macdonald sat down. The Prime Minister Asquith then got up and calmly vetoed any more speeches, saying there would be, quote, an early opportunity to discuss it all. Well, every single individual in the House could guess that it was another lie. Within hours, there would be no opportunity to discuss anything. The war would have started.
1: Well, now Asquith's own Liberal backbenchers began loudly shouting and demanding a debate straight away. Finally, the Speaker of the House was forced to concede that they should all meet later that evening and debate whether or not Britain should go to war. Well, when the House reconvened, Grey opened the debate by reading out Germany's demand, which he'd just received. Germany was asking to be allowed to send its troops through Belgium. Then he and Asquith walked out. For three and a half hours, MPs bitterly criticised Grey and his policy, but not a single government minister bothered to reply. Grey, Asquith, Haldane, Churchill, not one of them was even there to hear it. Just like the Cabinet over the preceding days, Parliament had been completely sidelined.
0: So where was Edward Grey, the man most responsible for dragging Britain into the First World War, during that evening's parliamentary debate? Well, we know exactly where he was. Grey was in his room at the Foreign Office. We know because he was chatting with his Oxford friend J.A. Spender, editor of the Westminster Gazette. This was a highly influential liberal paper aimed exclusively at London's gentlemen's clubs. Spender recalled that they looked out of the window at the streetlights and Grey said, quotes, The lamps are going out all over Europe and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. It's Grey's most famous line and it's always quoted to show what a wise statesman he was. But let's pause for a moment, looking out of that window with Spender, and reflect on the implication of what Edward Grey is saying. This is the man who's just told Parliament he's taking the country into a short naval war in which Britain risks little or nothing. Suddenly we're chilled by what we've just heard. Whatever he just told MPs in the House of Commons, we now understand that Grey doesn't share the common illusion that this will be a quick war over in a few days or weeks. This, he believes, will be a generation
1: of darkness. OK, let's be generous. Perhaps Grey supposes the Germans may prevail and conquer the continent, and that Britain is embarking on a decades long struggle to see liberty restored. Well, if that is so, then he's concealed it deliberately and consistently from cabinet and parliament. He's let the British army believe it can win a quick and easy victory, and he's told everyone else that it will be an effortless naval war. And at that very moment, Edward Grey is too much of a coward even to face the debaters in the House of Commons.
0: On the 3rd of August, Grey systematically and knowingly misled the British Parliament into the belief that the government was taking the nation into a brief naval war. The cabinet that met the next morning, Tuesday the 4th of August 1914, was understandably subdued. Prime Minister Asquith was still trying to hold on to the four ministers who'd already resigned. Then news arrived that Germany had invaded Belgium and declared war on France. Asquith wrote to his girlfriend Venetia, that Churchill had, quotes, all his war paint on. Churchill was openly relishing
1: the whole business. While the meeting soon descended into farce, someone, perhaps Churchill, proposed seizing Germany's colonies. And Harcourt, who was the colonial secretary, persuaded the cabinet at least they had to wait a bit. Then someone else began talking about spies... Harcourt scribbled in his notes on the meeting, there are many German spies here now and have been for a long time. We have full evidence against them and shall seize them at once now. Well, as we've seen, there had never been more than a couple of dozen German agents in Britain and they'd been trying to steal naval plans. The myth of a gigantic German army espionage system was a nonsense, got up by the press among the anti-German faction in the army and the civil service. The cabinet then agreed to send a demand to Berlin to withdraw from Belgium. Even Harcourt, who up till now had been vehemently opposed to war, seems to have resigned himself to what was inevitable. But nobody that morning even mentioned sending the army. Everyone apparently still believed what they'd been repeatedly assured by Edward Grey in the preceding days. This was going to be a war at sea. Everyone believed it, that is, except the Prime Minister, Churchill, Haldane and, of course, Grey himself.
0: Asquith and Gray stayed behind to draft the cable for Berlin demanding withdrawal from Belgium. They set midnight as the deadline for a German answer. Nothing had been said in Cabinet about declaring war. The documents aren't clear that the Cabinet had agreed to go to war, even if the Germans refused to withdraw from Belgium. Some of the Foreign Office men fully expected the Cabinet to be recalled in the middle of the night to decide what to do. But instead, that evening, the three old friends, Asquith, Gray and Haldane, sat down at number 10, without the rest of the cabinet. Lloyd George, the Chancellor, came round from next door. The Home Secretary, Reginald McKenna, was there too. They were all waiting for a reply from Berlin. But there was silence from Germany, which isn't surprising, since telegraph cables to and from Berlin were being cut soon after seven. At nine o'clock... An intercepted telegram revealed that the Germans had regarded themselves at war with Britain ever since, earlier in the day, the British ambassador had asked for his passports and announced he was leaving.
1: Well, crowds were now gathering outside Buckingham Palace, waving banners saying, poor little Belgium, and singing patriotic songs. At the Kingsway Hall in Hoburn, 2,000 women were meeting led by the veteran campaigner Millicent Fawcett. We'll discover a great deal more about her and her extraordinary success in winning the vote for women in our series about women's suffrage. Well, That evening, the women passed a series of resolutions calling for peace. Then a delegation walked up to Whitehall and posted their resolutions through the letterbox at 10 Downing Street. At roughly the same moment, the men inside were deciding to bring the deadline forward. Well, why hang around when they'd already made the decision to go to war, even if the rest of the Cabinet, Parliament and the country didn't know? Midnight in Berlin was 11 o'clock in London, wasn't it? So at that hour, they called a special meeting of the Privy Council. Formally
0: speaking, you need a meeting of the Privy Council to declare war. Now, the British Privy Council consists of dozens, usually even hundreds of men. They're bishops and archbishops. Distinguished politicians and judges, current and former government ministers, members of the royal family. In August 1914, the Lord President of the Privy Council was John Morley, one of the most outspoken critics of the government's policy of going to war. But that night, 4th of August 1914, Asquith summoned exactly two Privy Councillors, both elderly members of the House of Lords. Standing with the King, as tradition dictated, they formally declared a state of war to exist. At 11.20pm, the war telegram was dispatched to the armed forces. It had just three words, War, Germany, Act. As Churchill would later boast, there had been no cabinet decision. There'd also been no parliamentary approval. There'd not even been a formal declaration of
1: war on Germany. The colonial secretary, Harcourt, had arrived at Downing Street at 11.15. He records that there was quote, a long discussion as to tactics. While well, Churchill was all for blockading neutral ports like Amsterdam, Harcourt, himself now apparently in war mood, or simply accepting the inevitable, offered to send colonial forces to seize the important German wire station in Togoland, which is now partly Togo and partly Ghana. And now... The men in the room finally talked openly about sending the army to Flanders. But Harcourt reminded them that there were rumours of civil unrest in the north of England. They would need the troops to keep order. He also pointed out, as if after centuries of the British Empire, it shouldn't have been obvious to everyone that the army's priority was to defend the colonies. Well, what's completely clear from the voices in that room that night is that Grey, Haldane, Asquith and Churchill, who had led the country into war, had absolutely no clear idea what kind of war they'd got themselves into, nor any strategy at all for fighting it.
0: Outside when Big Ben struck midnight, the crowds fell silent. They didn't know they'd already been at war for an hour. At 11 o'clock on the night of the 4th of August 1914, Britain was at war with Germany. There was no formal declaration. There had been no cabinet decision. Parliament had not agreed. Britain had been taken to war by the Prime Minister Herbert Asquith, by Foreign Secretary Edward Grey, War Secretary Richard Haldane and First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill. They had been backed by the British Army, eager to win glory, lost in the Boer War and by a clique of Germanophobic civil servants. Without Britain's entry, it is more than possible that the war would not have begun at all. A decision made that evening in 10 Downing Street by these four British men, along with Lloyd George and McKenna, would lead to the death and injury of 37 million
1: across the world. The next morning, when the British cabinet met to discuss the new situation, the mood of some was suddenly boyish. The colonial secretary, Lulu Harcourt, told them, I am nervous about Zanzibar. I've turned out all the Germans. I shan't seize Togoland yet. When that morning he met the military to discuss the colonies, they decided to go immediately onto the offensive in India, New Guinea, Samoa and Nauru, and to look into attacks on German South West Africa and the Cameroons. During the cabinet, Churchill announced that his navy was already hunting down German ships in the Mediterranean, Well, that's curious, since Edward Grey had assured the House of Commons less than two days before that only the French were patrolling the Mediterranean, while the British were patrolling the Channel. It was one of the mendacious arguments he'd used to persuade Parliament that the British were obliged to enter the war alongside France.
0: That morning of the 5th of August 1914, everybody in the Cabinet was assuming it was going to be a short, brisk war. And Grey, who two days before had told a journalist friend that darkness was falling for a generation, didn't offer to enlighten them. Prime Minister Asquith had been telling dinner guests about a war lasting between three weeks and three months. Like the German politicians, the British government had made no plans at all for anything longer. There were no arrangements to make extra ammunition, No thought for getting supplies past German submarines, even though Britain imported nearly 80% of its wheat and 36% of its meat. There was only six weeks' supply of sugar, and the government was now hurriedly trying to purchase Cuba's entire 300,000 tonne crop. Nobody had thought about special taxes, nor even about
1: buying more uniforms. Britain has historically had a right-wing press, and the papers have for days been baying for blood. That morning, they were full of maps and speculation about the naval war the journalists imagine was about to unfold. Well, that was also their talk at Cabinet. When the ministers asked if, despite all his assurances to the contrary, Asquith now intended to send an expeditionary army to France or Belgium, he replied that he was meeting the military that afternoon, quote, to examine the use, if any, of troops. Of course, as we've seen, the army had already been mobilised and the French notified. Since 1905, plans had been covertly worked out to send a British expeditionary force to Flanders to face the Germans. The British army, and above all its director of military operations, the abrasive Henry Wilson, was extremely gung-ho about it. Wilson had spent weeks in Flanders, wrecking the battlefields, working out all the details with the French military command. He couldn't wait.
0: But when at 4pm that afternoon the War Council met for the first time, absolutely everything changed. It's difficult to imagine a more extraordinary scene. Gray, Haldane and Asquith were there, along with Churchill. So was Major General Wilson. He'd been goading Conservative MPs to put pressure on the Prime Minister to send the British Expeditionary Force at once. Seated at the table was also Field Marshal John French, Johnny French, who would take charge of the army if it was sent. He usually wore his abundant collection of foreign medals and often an elaborate uniform as well. Wilson, never the one to miss the chance for an insult, called Johnny French, a nice little man in his bath. But when he puts his clothes on, you can't trust him. You never know what he'll wear. One of Field Marshal French's senior officers was also there, a certain Lieutenant General Douglas Haig who disliked Johnny French almost as much as he disliked Henry Wilson. Next came the elderly field marshal Lord Roberts, who'd been the military adviser on William Lequeux's 1906 fictional novel The Invasion of 1910. That was the book which you remember from one of our earlier discussions had done as much as anything else to stir up mistrust of Germans among the population. Finally, there was Lord Kitchener, Britain's most famous soldier. He was the man with the colossal moustache and pointing finger, who'd later appear on the Your Country Needs You posters.
1: Kitchener wasn't supposed to be in London at all. He was supposed to be on a boat to Egypt, where he was now the British Consul. But the day before, just as he was stepping aboard, he'd suddenly been turned around and dragged back to London. It was partly the fault of the Times' military correspondent. Since Monday the 3rd of August, Charles Accord-Reppington had been running a campaign in the Times loudly demanding that Kitchener should be made War Secretary. Instead, that is, of Richard Haldane, who'd read a degree in Germany and was therefore cavalierly written off by Reppington and the other journalists as dangerously pro-German. Well, Asquith had repeatedly assured the cabinet that the army would not be sent to France. The note he passed around the cabinet table saying exactly that is still in Harcourt's papers in the Bodleian Library. Gray had led the House of Commons to believe that he was taking them into a purely naval war but the first war council that met after the outbreak of war rapidly and unceremoniously agreed to send the British Expeditionary Force to Belgium and France.
0: Why was that? Because they would, they said, honour French expectations and fight alongside them. Expectations, of course, that had been entirely created by the talks going on for years without any cabinet authorisation between Wilson and other British army officers and their opposite numbers in France. At this point in the meeting, Wilson must have been purring. But then, to Wilson's horror, the mood around the table changed. On the 5th of August 1914, the first day of the war, the British War Council met to try to work out what to do. The only plan they had was something that the army's director of military operations, Major General Henry Wilson, had cooked up with the French. He'd gone on a series of what were supposed to be bicycling holidays, sightseeing along the Belgian border. He'd also had a series of unauthorised meetings with the French generals in Paris. This was the plan that, according to the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, had, quote,
1: obliged Britain to go to war with the Germans on the French side. Colonial Secretary Lulu Harcourt dryly noted what happened at the War Council when it was reported to him later on. The assembled military had heard that, quotes, the Belgian situation not as was expected. Major General Wilson's long-pedalled, detailed plan, the one that had been so crucial in pushing everyone into war, was immediately and unceremoniously thrown out. When it came to it, Wilson's whole idea of tackling the Germans head-on was obviously insane. From the enormous height of his glittering career and huge popularity, Kitchener poured scorn on it. Six British divisions, he pronounced. Complete irrelevance in a war between France and Germany, both of which would field seventy. The British troops, continued Kitchener, should obviously be held in reserve, away from the front line. In just a few moments, Wilson's long cherished dream of quick glory against the Germans had turned to dust. In reserve? Everyone knew that a lot depended on how long a war it was
0: expected to be. Wilson, of course, had always thought it would be quick and easy, a passport to glory over in hardly longer than it took to bicycle along the Belgian border. The senior British generals around him hoped it might be over quickly, but like von Moltke, chief of the German general staff, they very much feared that it would not. Douglas Haig later claimed to have spoken up at this meeting and told the assembled uniforms that Wilson's plans were completely unrealistic. Instead of a war lasting only a few weeks, it would drag on for several years, he said. Haig advised doing nothing for several weeks to see what happened. Doing nothing? Meanwhile, he advised the army needed to recruit and train another 150,000 men. Haig, as we shall see in our series on the Battle of the Somme, would make all kinds of dubious claims about how far-sighted he had been. But since at least 1911, Lord Kitchener himself had been saying that in his estimation, a war with Germany would last three years. And, Kitchener had added ominously and presciently, it would come down to, quote, the last million men that
1: Britain could send. It was perhaps beginning to dawn for the first time on many of the politicians in the room just what kind of a murderous mess they'd got their country into. By the time the meeting broke up, Major General Wilson was in a fuming temper. It had been, he wrote later, an historic meeting of men mostly entirely ignorant of their subject. As events soon proved all too horribly, men like Kitchener understood a great deal more about modern warfare than Major General French cycling holiday Wilson did. The next day, the cabinet was making the best of the situation, but clearly everyone was lost. Nobody knew what to do or what they got into. Asquith wrote to his girlfriend, We look more like a gang of Elizabethan buccaneers. Colonial Secretary Harcourt piped up, "Uh, German colonies, I shall take most of them. After weeks of loudly opposing the war, even he had apparently given in.
0: That afternoon, Asquith went to the House of Commons and asked for £100 million. The House quickly agreed. But, and this is hard to believe, Asquith still said absolutely nothing about sending the army. MPs still thought they were voting the money for a short naval war. On Friday the 7th of August, Kitchener met the full cabinet. There was an unseemly schoolboy tussle over who should sit where, since Churchill wanted to take the place next to Asquith. But it was Kitchener who took the seat and lectured ministers in his high staccato voice the war could not be won by the navy britain would have to put quotes an army of millions into france and belgium and keep it there for years the
1: ministers were too shocked or afraid to argue the cabinet agreed to keep its decisions about sending the army secret even reppington the times correspondent who with his excellent contacts in the military including in fact kitchener himself had probably found out said nothing the public, in fact, was not told that the army was going to war in Flanders until the 18th of August 1914, nine days after it had already sailed. Haig and the other generals had stopped at Southampton for a, quote, sumptuous lunch with plenty of champagne. They then sailed without naval escorts, so feeble was the real threat posed by those so much vaunted German warships. By that time, the first shot had already been fired by a British army serviceman. It came from Sergeant Alhaji Grunchi and was fired in German Togoland. What happened when the British army finally reached France would be funny, were it not so utterly tragic.
0: Despite all those cycling holidays, Major General Wilson had established nothing so basic as a functioning intelligence operation in France or Belgium. So... A ragbag of language teachers, artists, musicians and, "quotes" professional adventurers were sent to Le Havre where they were given uniforms and a few days training in reconnaissance and blowing things up. Within a fortnight, they were at the front, attempting to sabotage the German advance. Lieutenant Colonel James Edmonds was sent to France to organise intelligence there. He was the man you remember we met in a committee at the War Office persuading the War Secretary to set up a secret service to counter German espionage. His evidence had largely come from spoof letters to the Daily Mail. Within a few days of arriving in France in August 1914, Edmunds suffered a breakdown and was reassigned back to a desk in London. Edmunds later wrote the official history of the war. It is a brilliant, believable an entirely misleading account. Neither it nor most textbooks about the war admit that the British army was quickly routed in Belgium
1: in August 1914. On the 27th of August, two whole battalions tried to surrender to the Germans at Saint-Quentin. At Lavournelle, another brigade ignored orders and ran. Douglas Haig's number no. 1 Corps retreated so fast they abandoned their wounded and lost touch with the rest of the army. Henry Wilson was at the British headquarters in saint Omer. He fled to his car and shouted at his chauffeur to drive like hell for Paris. In fact, the British army retreated in such disarray that Kitchener himself had to go to the French capital, give his officers a short, sharp talking to and send them back to fight.
0: So they had another go. What happened over the next four years is beyond tragedy. Go to the battlefields if you can marked as they are with the bleached crosses of the fathers, sons and brothers who are persuaded to join, or conscripted, and then killed in their hundreds of thousands. Take someone who knows the stories. Be prepared for heartbreak. It could probably all have been avoided, and probably finished much more quickly, but that's a hunch for our series on the Battle of the Somme.
1: The final question in this series is just how we can have remembered this story of why Britain was taken to war in 1914 so completely wrongly. We contend it may not be going too far to say that the British had been tricked into going to war. Grey, Asquith, Haldane, Churchill and an unseen clique of anti-German civil servants, army officers and journalists, above all Rappington and the Times, had embroiled Britain in a disastrous war that the majority of cabinet, parliament and maybe even the public didn't want.
0: We've been very conscious that many who listen to our account will be angrily shouting back, but we had to stop the Germans. Somebody had to prevent the Kaiser and his generals taking over Europe and perhaps much besides. We've tried, as we've gone along, to show that there is, at the very least, a very serious doubt about whether the Germans had ever had any such intention. Historical analysis of German documents suggests that the Germans fought the war out of fear that they were about to be crushed by the French and the Russians. They had made no preparations at all for an extended conflict, nor for the occupation of any territory. But the main reason that most British today continue to believe that there was an aggressive German crusade to take over the known world is that this was the story deliberately created at the time and in the years that followed.
1: Right from the start, from August 1914, there was a sophisticated campaign to cover up what had happened. It created the version of events that has ossified over time into a British tradition. Within days of declaring war, the government published a blue book containing 150 documents from the days leading up to the war. The documents had, of course, been heavily redacted. Any reference, for example, to pressure from Russia had been deleted. This, as we've seen, was in fact the most important reason the British had abandoned neutrality. But nowhere in the government account, the so-called Blue Book, were the British ambassador to Russia's phrases about the need to give the Russians our active support, otherwise our Indian empire will no longer be secure from attack by Russia. The Blue Book placed responsibility for the war squarely on the Germans. The Germans, it said, had lied and cheated and then invaded Little Belgium.
0: Surprisingly, some documents slipped into the Blue Book that showed that the German ambassador, Prince Lichnowsky, had offered to negotiate. Perhaps their inclusion was an oversight. Grey at once covered up by claiming that Lichnowsky, who was of course no longer in the country, had lied. He'd had no authority to negotiate. But it was not the case. The Kaiser had accepted the deal that Liknowsky had negotiated. It was, as we've seen, Grey who'd lied. As for Liknowsky himself, he never knew that Grey had, behind his back, destroyed the deal they'd agreed. In 1916, he published a pamphlet blaming his fellow Germans instead, accusing them of starting the war by refusing to negotiate with the Russians.
1: Well, this image of a war caused by grasping aggressive Germany has stuck. It was built into the Versailles Peace Treaty of 1919, imposed on the defeated Germans by the victorious French, British and Americans. But historians have long known that Article 231 of the treaty, which put the blame for the war completely on the defeated Germans, the so-called War Guilt Clause, was entirely framed for financial reasons. If the Germans were guilty, then they could be made to pay for the damage.
0: Over time, the story grew and gained credibility. After the Second World War, the influential popular British historian and broadcaster A.J.P. Taylor claimed that Germans were pushed by, quotes, aggressive impulses and had always longed to dominate. Their, quotes, bid for continental supremacy was certainly decisive in bringing on the First European War, he said. Well, of course, after the experience of Hitler's war, such a story was all too easy to believe. And Taylor would later blame the Second War on exactly the same kind of deep-seated German belligerence. More surprising, in 1961, a German historian, Fritz Fischer, drawing, for example, on Lichnowsky's 1916 pamphlet, agreed that German politicians, military and businessmen had planned a war to dominate Europe from at least
1: 1912. Few historians now accept these ideas. Even A.G.P. Taylor himself later changed his mind and argued against them. But they got stuck fast in popular imagination. The reality was that in 1914 there were military men and politicians in every one of the European countries who thought they could do well out of a short aggressive war. The historian David Newton has acutely pointed out that blaming Germany only looks plausible in hindsight because, as it turned out, the other nation's greedy land-grabbing plans came to nothing. The French army was unable to seize the German-speaking areas of Alsace or Lorraine they had coveted, though the French eventually took them at the peace treaty of 1919. Russia eventually collapsed without making the vast gains it had hoped for in Prussia and the Balkans. And as for Austria, instead of seizing the territory in the Balkans it had hoped, Austria was all but destroyed by the war, reduced to a small fragment of its former imperial pomp. The Americans
0: cashed in on the war to give themselves lasting dominance over the Western economies. But only one country profited massively in territorial terms, if in no other sense. The British used the war to make colossal gains around the world. They included Togoland, the Cameroons, and the German possessions in Africa and the Pacific, the territories we saw enthusiastically carved up in those first Anglo-French talks by Reppington and Huguet all the way back in January 1906.
1: Britain's enormous colonial dividend is conveniently forgotten in order to put the blame on the Germans. In reality, a tiny number of British politicians, military officers, foreign office civil servants, and especially a blindly Germanophobic clique of civil servants mostly educated at Eton, were at least as much to blame as the Germans or anyone else. They believed they could win a quick, relatively inexpensive war. Within days, they were proved appallingly mistaken. As George Orwell wrote, shortly after the beginning of the Second World War, probably the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, but the opening battles of all subsequent wars have been lost there.
0: Richard Haldane would be handed out of office altogether by the Daily Express in 1915 for being too German. In the same year, Reppington and the Times collaborated with Field Marshal Johnny French and Lloyd George to expose a disastrous lack of shells at the front. Asquith was forced to reshuffle his government and form a coalition with Bonar Law and the Tories. Later that year, Churchill quit the new government after the completely disastrous campaign he'd launched in Gallipoli. It would have destroyed any politician with a lesser sense of aristocratic entitlement. Churchill crossed to Flanders as a temporary lieutenant-colonel. In December 1915, the very well-connected Douglas Haig plotted to have Johnny French sacked and took over himself as commander-in-chief, just in time to create utter awfulness, as we see in our series on the Battle of the Somme. In 1916, Lloyd George manoeuvred Asquith out and took over as prime minister.
1: Lulu Harcourt and Edward Grey were also both kicked out in 1916, In February 1922, Harcourt would commit suicide, having been exposed as a serial paedophile. Grey went to the House of Lords. Later, he wrote a volume of self-justifying memoirs, in which, of course, he blamed the Germans for, quotes deliberately aiming at world predominance. He also wrote a book on birds, which was more accurate. He died in 1933, the year Hitler came to power.
0: Hitler, of course, did dream of massive German expansion. He did occupy Denmark, the Netherlands, France and much else. Once again, in 1940, the British would flatter themselves with the credit for having defeated German hegemony. The reality was a lot more complex. But that's a story for our series on the Battle of Britain.
1: For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.